All right, and, uh, and so basically what I want to do is just continue on looking at the spirit of life and adoption. And uh, hopefully this morning you caught what I was trying to get at there with, you know, sometimes those passages are, get confusing because we, we have one, I don't know about you, but coming from my background, when I read Romans 8.1, I get tweaked in a certain direction because I've been taught you can lose your salvation. And many people in the Mennonite realm are like that, and as soon as they hear a verse that Right away, all the clear verses are out the window, and, and this one foggy verse is now dictating my doctrine. And, uh, and so it's good to understand, and that's why I told the Lord as I read through this, uh, this chapter and as I was studying, I said, Lord, I don't want to just skip over things that I'm not comfortable uh, talking about or I want to stay away from or whatever. I want to understand it. And that's why you know, I, I touched on that today. And I, I have that in my notes for the last three weeks, but it never quite fit in with what I was saying. And so it, it really just fit in nice this morning talking about the aspect of um, walking, those that walk in the flesh and walk after the Spirit. And uh, especially in relation to sonship and uh, your position before the Lord. Uh, one thing you can never do, and this is a Bible uh, principle for, for studying Scripture, you, you always... You always define your doctrine based upon clear scripture. And so what happens is you'll get somebody coming along and they'll give you this thing from left field and what does this mean? And right away they're challenging your whole doctrinal structure, you know. And, but the thing is it's not a clear passage. It's not understood clearly. And so when you find that many times the passages that they give you to mess you up or to change your doctrine are most of the time actually solidifying your position. And I find that so many times, especially those verses that they use to maybe cause you to believe you could lose your salvation, most of those passages are actually giving you eternal security. And uh, so it's really strange how that works, but God, God got it figured out. And so uh, when you find a clear passage of Scripture, you know, these things I've written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God, that, that is so clear. You just can't, there's no other way to interpret that. That if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know you have a present state of eternal life. Now you think about that. If I have a present state of eternal life, that means eternal life now is in my possession. How could you ever not have eternal life? Because if I could lose it, then, then that wasn't eternal life. That was a temporal life. And so if, I, if, he, if he gives me that, that security that you can know, that's talking presently, that's talking right now, you can know you have eternal life. And one of the, the catch phrases, you know, of these that believe you can lose yourself, well, we'll see you when we meet God, or we'll see you when God, you know, judges or whatever, and they, they're always looking forward because we don't know, well, then what, do you, what, what can you say about that passage that says you can know? And not only that you can know you're going to be okay, but you can know right now you already have eternal life in your possession. So if you have eternal life in your possession, how could you ever not have eternal life? Amen? And that's clear passage. And there's so many more like that in the scripture that give you clear doctrinal basis for eternal security. So they come along and they throw this little blurb at you out of context. They, you don't look at the context. And most of the time, it's because people don't know how to discern between positional truth and practical truth. Yeah. And they mix it all up, and they, and they confuse you. And, or they go to Ecclesiastes, of all places. <laughs> you know, soul sleep, Ecclesiastes. 
There's nothing after the grave. Oh, that means it goes dark and black and I go to sleep and I'm just kind of off in la-la land somewhere and I have no consciousness. No, if, if you look at the context of Ecclesiastes, it's a perspective of man on everything under the sun. That's the key to the passage there. You're looking at the context under the sun, the way that man perceives these issues, not the way God sees them, but the way we see them. So what he's saying is, you better work now because after the grave, there's nothing. That means, explain to me what it's going to be like. Now, by faith, you could say, I know what the scriptures say, but really, in all reality, you're saying, it's, it's, it's over. I have nothing more to do on this planet. It's just finished, you know? But what they do is they make that sound like there's some kind of a soul sleep that you go to. And that's a Jehovah's Witness doctrine. So they'll take you to Ecclesiastes. And they won't give you the context of the book of everything under the sun from man's perspective. You know, And so you've got to be very careful. That's why the Bible says we need to be a workman. Uh, you know, we need to work. Uh, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth so you can't just take somebody's verse you can say okay let's sit down and read the whole book let's find out who that's written to what's the context of this no they don't want to do that they want to hop around you know and no sense in going with these people folks <laughs> you know just just walk away and and study your word amen and believe the doctrine that you've been given and so uh, anyways, let's move on from this. I'm going to look at, uh, today, I want to look at the uh, understanding the adoption. Now, this morning we looked at understanding sonship and looking at the general aspect of being a child of God and what that entails and, and how do I get that privilege of becoming a son? Well, by receiving Christ as my Savior. As many as received him, to them gave he power, that means the authority or right to be the sons of God. So that's a special blessing that is added to the aspect of salvation. So it's not just, I'm going to save you from going to hell, but that salvation has many things that are joined to it. And one of those things is this adoption, is becoming a son of God, is becoming a child in his family. Now, he wouldn't have had to do that. He could have just say, I'll save you and I'll set you on a planet over there and let you go do your thing. But that's not what he did. He says, no, I, I'm saving you to be with me <laughs> because that's been his desire from day number one is to be with his people, amen, that I may dwell among them. That's really the context of the whole scripture yeah. that he can be with his people. And so he does that by saving us and making us a part of his family. That's what the adoption's all about. And so let's go on here. Um, in verse 18, it says this, uh, verse 15, sorry. I don't think there is a verse 18 in this passage, in this uh, section, but it says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So I want to understand a little bit of what this means. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would just help us understand this passage in a clear way. And Lord, just speak to our hearts about this wonderful thing you've done for us by adopting us into your family. Lord, that just blesses my heart. I'm so glad that I'm your child, and I'm glad that you love me enough to give me that privilege, even though there's nothing in me that you needed. Lord, you're so good to us. I pray, Lord, that we be able to honor you in this passage today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, one that being adopted does not share the same DNA of the one adopting him. 
<laughs> you know, if they have your DNA, well, then you're not adopting. That's, that is your child. <laughs> Amen. So what you're really doing is you're adopting someone that does not have your DNA. They're not like you. You're taking someone from a different line, a different family. And, you know, that's number one for us. We need to understand when you become a child of God, you don't become God. So the Mormon doctrine of becoming God, that's just out the door. Uh, you're not of the DNA of the divine, <laughs> all right? And you never will be. And that's why he had to help us understand this isn't you becoming a God. This is an adoption. This is an adoption. This is someone from a different family being brought in to another family. And that's the important thing we need to understand here. Uh, the Mormon doctrine believes that you become a God. So just the way that Elohim right now is God, uh, who, which has a wife in heaven and had many spirit children, and they put those spirit children into bodies here on earth, that's what you become. That, that's, what, that's what they believe. So when you do well and you follow the Mormon teaching, you get elevated to this place where you become a god and you have many wives and you have spirit children and you yourself will have a little planet that you can go inhabit with all your children and they'll have bodies and exactly what's happening here. And those children can become gods and then they can go. And so it's a, it's a circular cycle that goes on. That's the Mormon teaching. No matter what they tell you, folks. <laughs> I remember I just taught through a, in, in Kenora, I wrote a, uh, um, a booklet on Mormonism. I taught our people that because we had a lot of Mormons in, in uh, Kenora. And uh, they, they knocked on one of our widow's doors one day. And so the lady just said, oh, I'm just going to get my pastor's book. And, went to the, and he, <laughs> she showed him what I had written about them. Oh, that's disgusting. He said, <laughs> well, this is what you believe. And I could prove it. I could prove it by your own writings. I mean, it's right there. See the quote? This is what, oh, that's just, see, it's deception. They want you to believe that they are just like you. Or they are just ignorant enough to think that that is the fact. But the real truth is that they believe they are the real Christians, and you're not. Just like the Catholic religion. Amen? why it's catholic it's universal so in order for you to be a true christian you have to be a part of the universal church you know well what if i reject that universal church well then you're not a part of christ's body you see but we don't go there we don't want we don't want to stir the pot that much <laughs> so we well that's disgusting <laughs> you know but this is what you believe my friend i mean this is well known i mean it's been documented for generations now and we know joseph smith we know what he's about we know what he said I mean, now they want to change the narrative. There was a time they believed that black people were, were actually people that came to earth uh, or that were brought to earth and, and they weren't allowed to have a regular body because of their rejection of taking a side with Lucifer or Jesus in the heavenlies. So they were rejected. Well, that didn't work so well, especially in this generation. And so that's why if you look at a lot of the their advertisements, they have a lot of black folks in there now. And they've kind of removed that doctrine since 1978. So let's just take our book and cross that out. It doesn't fit our society anymore, you know. I mean, what craziness is this, you know? But you, you tell them, oh, that's, just, that's not the way it is. I'm sorry, this is the way it is. And this is what you've believed. 
and you've just changed your doctrine to fit what you want the world to see you as. So that's something we never do as Christians. <laughs> this book has been the same from the beginning. We don't change it to fit society. I mean, if you don't like what the Bible says, then I guess you just won't like me, you know? But a lot of people, like, and there's, there's doctrines like that in the Scripture that people, you know, chide at, you know? But nothing that crazy, <laughs> you know? And so, so though we're in God's family, we are not divine. We're not divine. We've been made a son of God and share the divine nature without having a divine nature. This is the wonderful thing is that you're sharing with his divine nature without actually having a divine nature. You, you can't have a divine nature. You are not God. You, you are not born as God. And if you were born, that proves you're not God. The divine nature is eternal. Jesus Christ is divine. But he took upon himself the nature of man, which started at a point in time, and now he's continuing on with that nature uh, forever, for our sakes, to, to connect with us, his, his creation that he loves so much. Amen? So in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, it says, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Oh, I just wish I had what I need to live life. Well, you've been given everything that pertain unto life. I just wish I could live right. Well, you've been given everything that you need that pertains unto life and godliness. You can't make an excuse that you can't live godly. Yes, you can. Through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So here you are, you're not, you don't have a divine nature, but you can be a partaker of the divine nature through the promises of God. As you believe God and trust him, you're touching the divine. The divine is, is strengthening you, is changing you, is helping you think right, helping you talk right, helping you live right. That's because of the divine nature of God. But it's not your nature, but it's because you have connected to him through the Holy Spirit. That's why you can partake of that divine nature. Amen? So we're not the same DNA, but we're still a part of the family. Yeah. And that's a wonderful truth. Adoption is, is actually permanent. You think about this, when someone gets adopted, there's no out on that. There's no out. So if you were ever to adopt a child, that child is yours. <laughs> they are now adopted into your family. In fact, under Roman rule, it was against the law to disown a child you adopted. You could not disown an adopted child. But you could disown a biological child. Think about that for a second. It was lawful to disown your biological child, but it was against the law to disown your adopted child. You talk about security. Now, why is that? It's because this. Because they believe that if you chose to adopt a child, you knew what you were getting when you adopted him into the family. It was done through a definite choice, 
through intelligence and wisdom, and they expected that you did your homework and knew exactly what it meant when you adopted that child. When you have a biological child, <laughs> not necessarily the same. Well, I didn't know I was getting into this. Well, disown them. <laughs> but they said, you should have known that child before you adopted. You had a choice. And so God looks at us as I'm making a choice. I know what I'm getting into. Isn't that amazing that he, he works those laws? The Bible says he holds the, holds the hearts of the kings in his hand. And he turneth it whithersoever he goes. He was behind the making of that law. Yes. So if you're here, you've been adopted into a family, and maybe you always felt, oh, I'm not a real biological. <laughs> You've got a better position as an adopted child than the biological children in the eyes of God. Because it was a definite choice that I made. I understood you, I know what I'm getting into, and I'm offering you this. And it's permanent. Can't be reneged. <laughs> Can't back out of it. Amen? That's a great truth. Adoption also guaranteed an inheritance. In fact, a lot of adoptions that happened in the early church at that time under the Roman rule were done because of inheritances. They would do that so they could give their, their inheritance to somebody that they loved. So they adopted them. And many times it was a servant. Then maybe they didn't have biological children. So they took that servant and says, we're going to adopt you into our family so we can leave you everything. So many times adoption had everything to do with the inheritance. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's the same thing God tells us. Look at verse 17. It says, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. We are the sons of God and we share with Christ everything that Christ has. We're an heir. Not only just an heir, but we're a joint heir. A joint heir. So we're heirs where, uh, and the word heir means to have in one's power to distribute an inheritance divided by lot a joint heir is a sharer by lot, one who participates in the same lot, a joint heir. So I'm joint heirs with Christ, so I actually share with him the inheritance that he has. Now you'd think that, well, Jesus would have a bigger... No, <laughs> that's not what it's saying. It's saying that I share with Jesus everything that is his. I'm a joint heir with him. And that I'm an heir of God. That means God says, I'm going to give you an inheritance. And that inheritance is a joint heirship with my son, Jesus Christ. Wow. That's pretty exciting. You know, in Hebrews 11, verse 9, we have this actually demonstrated here. It says, by faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, talking about Abraham, dwelling in tabernacles, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Isaac and Jacob. Now think about those two names. Joint heirs. Isaac and Jacob. Now, one thing that you are not associated with is Jacob. Jacob, his name was changed to Israel. So really, you really um, associate with Abraham. 
but not just with Abraham, but with his promised son called Isaac. Isaac is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're joint heirs with Christ. And so here it tells us in this passage that there's these joint heirs. There's Jacob and Isaac. Isaac is representing everybody that's in Christ. Jacob is representing the children of Israel. (laughs) Tells you it's two different groups of people, but you know, that's why the Bible tells us that we have things together with Israel. We're actually sharing the inheritance of God with Israel. We're joint heirs with Christ. And then we also share with Israel, Jacob, who Jacob's name was changed to Israel. In Ephesians 1 verse 10, it says this, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, but which, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. He might gather together in one all things in Christ. So, number one, I want you to see there is that Israel has an inheritance with God. And you, being a child of God through Jesus Christ are together in that same inheritance. We've been made one in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it says right there. So we're joint heirs. I want to show you some more about that in a little bit here. What about God's adoption program? Now, number one, God has chosen to adopt all those that receive Christ. This is his, this is his choice. He's choosing this for us. And in Ephesians 1 verse 5, it says this, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Now the Calvinists will say, "Ah, predestination. (laughs) Well, predestined unto the adoption. What that's saying is this, to those that will receive Jesus Christ. You've already been predestined to be adopted into the family of God. He didn't predestine you to be saved. (laughs) But he predestined the saved to be adopted. That's what that's saying over there. So don't let them mess with your heads over that. (laughs) All right, John MacArthur and all those other guys. This means that as a part of being redeemed... You're also given a place in God's family. Like I said, it didn't have to be that way. God could have, you know, put us on this little uh, planet called Kolob. (laughs) That's Mormon. (laughs) As spirit children. (laughs) He didn't do that. He said, no, that's not what I'm about here. I'm not just about saving you from going to the fire. What I'm doing is I'm, I'm, I'm actually doing what I've always wanted to do from the beginning and walk with you in the garden. I was walking with you in the garden. Along came the snake. The snake messed you up separated us. I spent the next thousands of years developing this plan or giving you this plan that brought you back to me. That's what this is about. And in that return to me, what I want to give you is this. I want to give you sonship. I don't deserve it. I left him. (laughs) But that's the forgiveness and redemption of God. So he not only saved us from hell, but he actually gave us a place in his family. Those are two different things. You can, you can save somebody without making them a part of your family. But he says, to those 
in Christ, I'm going to predestine you to be my child. There's no changing that. And he knew who they were, every last one of them, according to his foreknowledge. Now, there was a man um, by the name of Mephibosheth, a really nice name there. Somebody needs to name their child Mephibosheth. Why not? It's a good Bible name. <laughs> 2 Samuel 9, 3, the next boy is delivered. In <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> Make it a middle name then. <laughs> David, be careful. <laughs> 2 Samuel 9, 3, it says, And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto him, King, Jonathan hath yet a son, which is lame on his feet. Now, this, this always touches my heart, this passage. So forgive me if I'm going to cry, because I do it every time. There's two passages that do that to me. This passage, <laughs> and when Joseph receives his brothers. Boy, that gets me every time. Because it's that, these two things are so close to us. It is us. Amen. Anyways, what's happening here, David has become king. He had a very good friend, a dear friend that he loved more than anybody on the planet. And his name was Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of King Saul. And King Saul was not a good king. Actually sought to kill David many times. And God took him out and put David in his place. But Jonathan, even though Jonathan was a son of Saul and could have legitimately taken the throne, he took off his royal garments, his sword, and he said, David, this is yours. Wow, man, that is just so anti-modern day. (laughs) I want this, I'm the boss around here. (laughs) Jonathan loved him so much. So they made a pact with one another, and he just said, Jonathan said, just whatever happens here, Please show kindness to my family. So what we're seeing is we're seeing the the outflow of that in this passage here. It says, Is there yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? Because I want to fulfill this. A promise, a covenant that I've made with Jonathan. I want to fulfill that. See, that's God. (laughs) I want to fulfill this. I want to fulfill it towards you. And the king said unto him, David said, Where is he? And Ziba said unto him, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then king David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake. And I will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, This really hits me. What is thy servant? that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog. It's you. I hope you didn't walk in the presence of God and say, you should save me now. What am I, Lord? It's a dead dog. 
why would you show kindness to me? I've got nothing, nothing to offer you, David. They didn't realize that this was a promise. It's a covenant. I promised that I would love you, Mephibosheth. He made that covenant with Jonathan. Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertain to, the, to Saul and to all his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him. Thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. So in other words, you go ahead and you, you, you get all his fields ready. You bring in the crop. You fill up the storehouses. You do all this for him. But he's not going to eat one bit of it. Because he's always going to eat with me. The king. Then said Ziba unto the king, According to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, saith the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. That's adoption. From that day forward, Mephibosheth was the son of David, the son of the king. Throughout everything that happened, David treated him like his own son. See, that, my friend, is the process of adoption right there. <laughs> so you got to understand in your heart, there was nothing you had to offer. The reason why he gave you that adoption is because of a covenant that he had made long before he ever took your first breath. He loves you. He told you he loved you before you were ever born. <laughs> and he offered you this place at his table. I hope you came to God the right way. I hope that you realize... That's why sometimes with Christians, I wonder, like, how could you have ever come before the Lord in a humble way because you're not a humble person? How could you ever have realized, how could you ever have come to Christ with nothing when you think you have so much? Like, where did you get it? After salvation? Like, what, what makes you so great? And sometimes I talk to Christians, they think they're so great. And I wonder, how could you ever have met the king and said, I am such a dead dog with everything you think you are? And that's what's wrong with Christianity today. We think that Jesus just died for the bad people. He suffered so bad for because of Hitler and all these evil. No, he suffered because of you. Because what you did, what you are, that's what brings you before him in reverence and worship. That's what causes you to say, Lord, if you did that for me, I'm going to give you my life. Why is it that Christians aren't giving themselves to the Lord anymore and saying, Lord, if you wanted me to preach, I'd preach. You want me a missionary, I'll be a missionary. I'll give up my job, I'll give up my money. How could you ever say that you came to him like Mephibosheth came to David when you're holding on to so much of what you think you are? Not realizing that everything you have is because God made the proclamation, I give you all of, your, of Saul's house. You need to understand after salvation, everything you have is saying, Lord, this is yours. This is yours. I'm a steward now. You've given this into my hand, but it's not because of me. It's not because I'm great. It's because you're great. Yeah. Amen. Amen. 
God has given us the spirit of adoption. We see that here in verse 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit of adoption, you notice how he compares it to fear. That's the contrast. So I'm not giving you the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. (laughs) So that means if I've received the spirit of adoption, I'm no longer living in the spirit of fear. (laughs) Those are two contrasts. Those are two opposites. Amen? Now what he's talking about here, the spirit of bondage, is this law that we talked about, the law of sin. The law of sin and death. And that's why I have a real aversion to people talking about the aspect of losing salvation. <laughs> Sometimes I look at Christians and they, they, they're so associating with these people, like somehow, oh, it's just another little version of, of our, you know, our Christianity, or oh, it's just a small little, it's like <laughs> maybe uh, I like this type of clothes and that. No, this is, a, this is an attack on the very essence of the gospel. It's an attack on the gospel. That's why I'll never receive a baptism that anybody has received from a church that taught you could lose your salvation. Because they have no authority before God. And therefore I reject that. I have to for the sake of the gospel. Amen? The law of sin, there's fear. Facing God's wrath as judge. That's what you're living (laughs) If you haven't been adopted into the family of God, you're living a life of fear, waiting for the judge. That's who God is to you. But the law of the spirit of life, the spirit of adoption, is no fear. Facing God's love as our Father. So you can live your life waiting for the judge. Or you can live your life waiting for the Father. Spirit of adoption is opposite to the spirit of fear. The Bible says he's not giving you the spirit of fear, but power and love and of a sound mind in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy was subject a little bit to fear in his life. He was young. He didn't know how to handle all the pressures. (laughs) Paul just says, you've not received that spirit of fear. That that doesn't belong to you. (laughs) That ought not be. God didn't give you that. And here he tells us what he did give. The spirit of adoption. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Daddy. If all God to you is a judge, it's like looking at your dad as as a judge. How can you look at your dad as a judge? If you have a father, you look at him, and I understand he's been tough with you sometimes, and he disciplines you, and he chastises you. You've got a reverence there, and, and and you know I can't cross the line with my dad, but when it comes down to it, you look at your dad, you look at those eyes, say, that's my daddy. I love him. And that family bond is so tight. I can, I can sit down, I can start thinking about my dad, and tears will come to my eyes. I love him. I love him so much. But boy, he's been tough on me sometimes. He's not a judge. <laughs> but you know, he's been tough, but he's my daddy. One thing I know, no matter what, if I had trouble, I said, Dad, could you help me? It would, there'd be no delay. There'd be no delay. 
So what can I do? How can I help? See, that's the spirit of adoption. That's the spirit of family. Amen? So if you're just sitting around fearing all the time and worrying about meeting God, and I mean, where is your salvation? Where is your new birth? Where is your adoption? What, what, what kind of relationship do you have with God anyways? The spirit of adoption. And the Bible says you have that right now. It says, for you have not received the spirit of adoption, but you have received. So that means already you have already received the spirit of adoption. That's already with you if you're a child of God. All right? Now, in Mark 14, verse 36, it says this about Jesus. And it says, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. So it is, it is the, the, the hardest and darkest time of the Savior's life when he was preparing to meet his death at that cross. You know where he went? On his knees to his daddy. Abba. Not God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abba. That's the relationship you have with God. You need to go to him more often. He wants to hear from you. Sometimes I get so busy here and I, oh, I need to contact dad. We have a FaceTime. Oh, I was wondering when you were calling. I was wondering when you were going to call. <laughs> you know, it's been, been too long and he's, he's waiting for me. The father's waiting. The father's waiting to hear from you. And you get so busy and all full of the things you do and you forget that, that relationship you have with your father, which is so important. So busy, busy, busy. You know, yet when you call, oh, it's been so long, and they try to be kind about it, but their heart is just, oh, I wish you would have called sooner. I wish you'd call me more often. Amen. That's the way God feels about you. He wants you to talk to him every day. Galatians 4, 6, it says, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The spirit of his son. So now it's not just the spirit of life. It's not just the spirit of God. But now it's the spirit of his son. <laughs> well, that makes sense because the Bible tells us that the spirit is a part of our inheritance. And if it's a part of our inheritance, that means a part of Christ. And if, if the spirit is a part of Christ and his inheritance, I'm joint heirs with Christ. And that means that his spirit is now my spirit. And so now I can call it the spirit of Christ. Amen? And that's because of the adoption. So the spirit of the Son is now in us, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So because you're joined heirs with Christ and the spirit is a part of that inheritance, it has to also be the spirit of Christ too. Amen? So think about that. The spirit of God's in you, but the spirit of God's in him. It's a part of the inheritance that he's given to you. It's the down payment against everything you're going to get and so that means that's Christ's spirit too because you're joint heirs with him. That's how close it is with him, amen? The spirit of adoption testifies of our adoption. I already looked at this, but the spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Your spirit is the home of the spirit of God. The spirit, capital S, itself bears witness and by the way, people say itself. Oh, no, there's something wrong with the King James Bible. It calls it itself. Well, the only problem is that's the word that God gave. And if you do a study of that, if you change it to anything else, it wouldn't make sense. 
Because it's not just talking about the Spirit. It's talking about everything the Spirit has given you. <laughs> the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And so you have a spirit, but that spirit, remember, used to be dead in trespasses and sins. But now it's been made alive because the Spirit of God came inside of you. So now the Bible says that His Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. That place that was once empty is now full. <laughs> See, before you got saved, you always had that vacuum in you. <laughs> That's why you're always looking for things. You're sometimes drinking. We'll see if I can fill the vacuum. <laughs> Dope and drugs and whatever else, you know, whatever sins you could come up with to, to kind of satisfy your life because you had an empty spot in you you're trying to fill. But when, when the Spirit of God came in, it filled that place in your spirit. So now you can become satisfied and content. You couldn't before. Before, you're always bored with life, and, oh, I'm so bored, I need to do something. Oh, let's go do something, let's go out from the weekend, and, oh, I can't wait till Friday, get my paycheck, and we'll have some, a good time this weekend. <laughs> because you're so discontent. That empty place in your soul. But after you got saved, it was like, I guess I can put my paycheck in the savings account, and maybe I can tithe on that, and, you know, because I've, I've, I've found contentment. I, I feel like I'm happy now. I feel like there's, everything's been taken care of in my life. Amen? And that spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. Do you guys have that today? You're restless and empty. You don't know whether you're saved or not. You're restless and empty. You're always looking for something. <laughs> Talked to a guy a couple of weeks ago and I read the Bible 14 times. Well, it's great. Read the Bible 14 times. But folks, if you don't receive Christ, you're going to the same hell whether you read the Bible 1,400 times or 1,000 times. You've got to let it fill you. You've got to receive Christ and let him in. Amen. Always, the Bible says, ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. They're trying to impress you with their pursuit of knowledge. Oh, I pursue knowledge. I pursue it. I pursue it. Look, I do research and I pursue and I research and look at me. And I look ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. I look at them and say, well, I guess I'm maybe not as good as a researcher, but something tells me I'm a little more content than you are. Because his spirit is bearing witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. I'm trying to prove anything. I'm trying to get something out of the scripture. I'm letting the Bible now read me instead of me reading it. See, all he's doing is ever learning. I'm reading it. I'm reading the Bible so I can prove this, prove this. <laughs> no, why don't you read the Bible so it can prove you? Yeah. Amen. So it can change you. You can know you're saved forever. God will complete the adoption and the resurrection. See, you receive the spirit of adoption, but your adoption isn't done yet. It's a process. And so you've received that spirit. But the Bible says in Romans 8.22, it says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. So, when he's talking adoption, he's just not talking some mystical, spiritual experience here. 
He's saying, no, it's important that I give you the spirit of adoption, but that's not where it ends with me. See, I plan on picking you up from the orphanage. Physically. Physically. And you know that any child that, no matter whether they sign the papers or not, and even though that child is mine waiting for me at the orphanage, they really just want to be picked up. And if you're a true child of God, that's what you want too. And you're waiting for the adoption. So I am adopted, I have the spirit of adoption, but I'm still waiting for the adoption. Because like I've told you many times, you're three parts. Spirit, soul, body. His spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are the child of God, you've got the spirit of adoption, but you still got this soul that you're working through and then you got this body. Where's that body going to end up? What's going to happen with this body? You know, we're all worried about the body. Well, we know that the Bible says it's going to be a resurrection. And in that resurrection, the adoption will take place. That's where the father comes to pick up his children, gathers them together, the children. Now, I've purchased all your adoptions. You're all mine, all legal-like. It's all permanently done. I've been working in your life. I've been sending you things to prepare you for for this resurrection, and now I'm come to do it. And so on that day, when the trumpet sounds, he's going to gather all of his children from the orphanage. He's going to bring them up with him. It's associated with the redemption of our body. The completion of the adoption coincides with the redemption of our body, you see. Because he's not just interested in just filling your spirit. <laughs> he wants to fill your soul and he wants to give you a new body so that when you actually go spend eternity with him, you're going to be a child that is perfecto, totally sanctified, totally clean, totally there for eternity. Now he says, that I may dwell among them. These are my children, my sons. Amen? That's what he wants to do. That's his whole purpose. It's really that simple. I mean, there's a lot of doctrine, a lot of stuff in the Bible. <laughs> but it really just comes down to this. I was with you in the garden. I created that garden to spend time with you. The devil came in, separated you between, with, with sin. You couldn't be together anymore. And I had to send my son to bring, us, bring you all back. And if I'm going to bring you back, I'm going to make you my sons. I'm going to let you sit at my table like Mephibosheth. You're always going to eat at my table. Everything I have is yours. All my inheritance, everything I own is going to be shared with you. <laughs> That's pretty decent. <laughs> That's pretty wonderful. That's our heritage. That's our inheritance. That's our future. All of us in this room today, that's what you've got to look forward to. And the Bible says you've already received the down payment. You've been, you've been sealed. See, that's why I take this personally too. People start messing with the scripture and talk about, oh, well, God's going to forsake you. He will not. <laughs> in fact, the Bible says, and whom you trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed. That means to set a seal for the sake of security. When Jesus was crucified and they put him in that tomb, Herod was a little afraid what was going to happen is the disciples were going to come and steal the body of Jesus and say, oh, we rose. So he put his seal on that tomb. 
Now that seal was supposed to guarantee that nobody was going to mess with the body. And then he put soldiers by the tomb. A seal and the soldiers. <laughs> he thought what he was going to do was make sure that God would not get the glory from that resurrection. But what he did is actually furthered the glory of God and actually the king sealing the tomb, making it impossible for anybody to steal the body of Jesus to prove that he did rise from the grave. And that same type of seal was placed on you when you believe the gospel. Except this wasn't Herod's seal. These weren't Herod's soldiers. This is the seal of God. And no man can break the seal of God. So when you receive Christ, the Bible says you believe the gospel. You receive Jesus. You were, you were given the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit sealed you until when? Notice what it says here. Verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance. The earnest is the down payment the initial payment, it's like that payment you make on your house when you're buying a house. It's a down payment. I'll give you $1,000 against the rest of the money. It's called a down payment. If you don't pick up your house, guess what? You lose your $1,000. But God doesn't lose himself. So if he gives you his spirit, there's no way he's going to back out on the deal. And that's a part of the seal. So which is the earnest of our inheritance until what? Till when? The redemption of the purchased possession. The adoption. The adoption. So from this point, now have you guys received Christ? How many of you would say, hey, there was a time I heard the gospel, there was a time I believed in my heart, and there was a time the Spirit came in and sealed me. Amen? Amen? Is that true for you? Can I tell you something? If that took place, you are sealed until the resurrection. No, people say to you, oh, yeah, but if you do wrong, <laughs> you are wrong. <laughs> if you do wrong, well, how much wrong do you have to do? Because you're going to do it. And, folks, if you could lose your salvation, there's not one person in this room that would be saved. You've all done enough to lose it. Even what did Adam do in the garden? Oh, I like this. You ever done something like that? God told you not to do something, you did it anyways? You know, that was enough to bring the whole world into the curse. So if you were to lose your salvation, how much would you have to do? Little, the smallest, minutest. Oh, that's just a small sin. <laughs> that just shows you how devastating it is. The smallest of sin would bring you into hell. Any sin. Any sin. You can have no sin in the presence of God. You can have done nothing wrong. And that's why the righteousness of God has to be imputed to you. You have to stand before God perfect. So how can I do that? I'm not perfect. You can't. And that's why Jesus did what he did. Then yeah. he seals you. And he seals you your whole life. So these teachers that come to you and say, oh, no, you can lose it. Give them a good slap on the head. <laughs> no, don't do that. You can just pretend you did. I knew a preacher, a good fundamental Baptist preacher. He was dying of cancer. He preached his heart out his whole life. When he was in the hospital dying of cancer, he had this chaplain come to him and start giving him a false gospel. He just wound up and slapped him. <laughs> I know that's not right, but it was still pretty funny. <laughs> and he says, get out of here, you false teacher. 
This man has given his life to the gospel so that souls could be saved, and he hated it. That this man was out there telling people about this false gospel that was going to send them to hell. That's a little bit of righteous indignation there, I think. Yeah. Amen? Anyways, don't do that. But laugh when someone else does it. No. <laughs> Spirit is a down payment against our inheritance. Day of redemption. It's the day of the rapture. So the day of redemption is the same thing as talking about the rapture. That's the resurrection. All right? It goes hand in hand. It's you know, the redemption of the body, same as the resurrection. Sealed unto the redemption is the same as the rapture. Amen? Now the Spirit guarantees our resurrection, completing the adoption. See, in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, remember what it says here? A little further up. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. So that Spirit in you, sealing you, and because that Spirit is in you, on the day of the resurrection, that Spirit's going to take you and say, we're going up, boys. Just like He did with Jesus on the third day. Amen. And the adoption is complete. And the child that's been longing and waiting and looking out the window and saying, oh, where's my dad? Where's my dad? I want to see my dad. It's not enough just to talk to him on the phone. It's not enough just to pray. I want to see him. I know he's coming soon. And every hear a little car outside, he put it go up, put his face against a window. Is that my dad? To my dad. It's all I want. I just want to be with my dad. You know, these children had very little aspirations. Oh, I want to make a million dollars. No, they didn't. I want to do great things. No, they didn't. All they wanted was a dad. You look at some of these children that don't have a dad. What do you want? If you could have one thing, what, what, what do you want? I just want a dad. Dad comes, he signs the paper, I'm coming back to get you. I've adopted you. And I've sealed you. I'm going to keep you safe. Just be patient, because I'm coming. Okay, Dad, I believe you. I trust you, Dad. And you're excited in your heart. And you keep yourself pure, and you keep yourself right, and you're just waiting on that adoption to finish. You don't want him to come and find you doing stupid things. So you're a good kid. You, you, you want your dad to be proud of you. And he drops in the one day and all of a sudden he's there. Come on, son. It's time to go home. That's what we're all waiting for. That, my friend, is the spirit of the law. The law of the spirit of life. It's a law that cannot be broken. Nobody's breaking that law. Somebody, they say opposite of that, you say, just go away. You don't know my father. He told me he's coming back for me and he's coming back. Stop making him look so bad. Amen. Let's bow our heads. If you're here tonight, you don't know Christ as your Savior. Can I encourage you to settle that tonight? See, he wants you to be with him. But sin has kept you from him. Sin. Not just the things you do, but what you are. Your sin nature. You can change your whole lifestyle. It's not going to make a difference. 
Jesus came to pay for your sin, not just for what you do, but for what you are. He came to give you his righteousness so you could meet him one day and face, face to face see the holy God of heaven. He wants to give you his spirit as a down payment to seal you against your adoption, that inheritance that you're going to receive. Oh, folks, don't worry about what you have down here. You may not have a nice house down here, but you got a mansion up there. You may not have all the things that you think you need down here, but you do. Your father guaranteed that you're going to have what you need. If you talk to him, he may send you something. The Bible says the father knows what you have need of. Why don't you ask him? There's something that, that's bothering you, something that's heavy on your heart. Talk to your father about it and say, Daddy, Abba, Father, he's given you the spirit of adoption, not the spirit of fear. Don't be afraid to come to him. Come boldly before his throne. What, what's burdening your heart tonight? Whatever it is, just say, Dad, I just want to tell you something. This is on my heart. Take some time. Talk to him right now. Are you saved? Are you born again? When I asked if you could raise your hand before, could you raise your hand or did you struggle with that? You don't know if you're saved. You need to get that settled tonight. Don't wait another day. Get saved tonight. Don't die in your sins. Don't die in your sins. He'll forgive you. And if you need to be saved today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come forward in the invitation and just come up to me and say, Preacher, I need to be saved. And we'll have someone take the Bible and show you how to be saved. Christian, why don't you talk to your dad a bit? I know all of you have a heavy heart over something. Why don't you ask him what, about the things of your life and say, Lord, while I'm waiting for you, it's been tough. I'm looking forward to seeing you, but Lord, while I'm here, could you please help me with this? Father, 